It's not emotionalism. It's Juliet talking about defining emotionalism and trying to discipline myself not to have fun with her. We're talking about alcoholism. So emotionalism is where you uh, you attend that 12-step pro- program called Emotions Anonymous. It's true. Have you ever, have you ever, I've given a talk to Emotions Anonymous. Uh, they do the 12, same 12 steps. They have the ism. But their solution isn't alcohol, drugs, or sex. It's just that they have emotional outrageaholics. You've heard that? So people that have fits of anger and rage and domestic violence, they go to Emotions Anonymous. Some of them go to Domestic Violators Anonymous. There's 211 12-step programs that I know of myself. All using the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I stay out of that stuff, but I qualify for many if I wasn't an alcoholic. So because I'm an alcoholic and I, and I suffer from alcoholism, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are one third of the triangle. See, some people, is it tape on? Okay, some people will talk a lot about the steps and they'll say it's all about the steps, that that's our program of action. Well, that's partly true. You got the steps. But what's missing? I mean, let's say you've got a three-legged stool. If you have a three-legged stool, what happens if you take one of the legs out? It can't stand. It cannot stand. So, if you add a little circle and triangle in there, we have three legs. you got the circle and triangle, right? you got the three legs of that triangle. One is recovery, which is the 12 steps. One is unity, which is the 12 traditions. And one is the recovery service which embodies the 12 concepts of world service. And those are the three elements of Alcoholics Anonymous. Two of them almost always get overlooked. A better way to put it is mind, body, and soul. So when we talk about the spec, when people tell you that's our only, if they use the word only program of action, then they're missing two-thirds of the triangle. Is I have to not only work the steps, but I have to be involved in service, and I have to freely give back what I've been found, and I've also got to make sure that AA is protected in its singleness of purpose. Sean, you have a question? Yeah, where does fellowship fit into this? Here's the seat. The fellowship is the embodiment of what makes us connect with each other. That's what brings the whole thing together. If all you do is the fellowship, though, you'll stay dry for a while, or perhaps you won't. But you see, you begin to ease your way out of AA, because those of us that are incorporating AA as a way of life, we move away from people like you. We don't mean to. It's not judgmental. It just happens. You know, water seeks its own level. And it's like if you have a group of Alcoholics Anonymous that are very rigorously involved in service, and then you get some people who aren't, they don't mix. They just kind of go do their own thing. And I'm not judging either one. It's just that that's what happens. But I can tell you this. If you're an alcoholic like me, AA is not a spectator sport. We all have to be involved. Because if this is, if, if I have to believe this is true for me, uh, and you're an alcoholic of my type, I'm tempted to let other people do the work in hopes I'll get the effect produced. It's like, if you go to work, I'd like your check. I don't know about you, but let me tell you what I told my mom one time. I didn't ask you to birth me. Don't tell me to go out and get a job. Take care of me, God damn it. Quote, unquote, that's what I said to my mother. I was 17. And I was about to get married to a woman I impregnated in a blackout first time I drank. And I was going to graduate the retarded senior class that year. 
And I honestly believe what I said. I deserve to be taken care of because I did not ask to be born. I did not ask to be brought into this world. Why should I have to take responsibility? Do you think he can penetrate that type of thinking? The Clone 12 refers to that as belligerence. And that's not a character defect. That's a personality trait, one that I adopted. Yes. Shelby. Like alcoholism. Okay, that's alcoholism. I'm not. Okay. Okay. Okay, Shelby wants to know if he suffers from multiple addictions and afflictions, including alcoholism, and do I believe that he can get everything he needs here? I can only tell you that I get everything I need here. I've not been to any outside therapy, some people have said I needed it. And I don't put down therapy because if I say anything, anything about therapy at all, somebody's going to come up to me at the big book and show me where they said it's okay to get outside help. I'm, I'm not putting down therapy. I've been to every kind of therapy you can think of. The only reason they couldn't help me is basically because I lied to them all the time. <laughs> or I went drunk. And, uh, but I, I have a lot of different issues, if you will, of emotion, of discontent. It's like I'm a domestic violator. I've been arrested nine times for domestic violence. Some people say that has nothing to do with alcoholism. It has everything to do with alcoholism. We'll find out steps four through nine. It's, I haven't hit a woman since I've been sober. Well, some people have. Now, I thought about it. <laughs> and some of you women hitting in too. I know, I met one. And I'm not trying to rationalize or minimize what we do. But we do different things that all look like separate issues. But my primary one is alcohol. And therefore, I have alcoholism. So I can give it's the same 12 steps, same fellowship, same everything. It's like I could fit into Emotions Anonymous, just like I said. I just couldn't talk about my drinking. That's pretty important. Because drinking is my solution. I had all these other stimulating singing problems, but they, my problems, and I bet yours do too, Shelby, my problems all come down to this, right here. This right here. Separation. Conscious and unconscious separation from God. Every, every person I've talked to that's got a 12-step affliction experiences the same thing when it comes to the ism. Unconscious separation from a loving Father God. And they're powerless. And we find different solutions for that powerlessness. Drugs, alcohol, sex, cigarettes, food, uh, gymnasium for crying out loud. I mean, how many of you got obsessed with the gym? I mean, how about marathon running? Uh, this is not about smoking, but I remember when I stopped smoking 18 years ago. I was only smoking four packs a day, not bad. I dropped dead at the podium three years. See, I didn't drop dead drinking, but I dropped dead at the podium three years sober. I was giving a talk at a New Year's Eve party, and my lungs collapsed. I dropped dead on the spot. And they brought me in, put tubes down me, and put me in the hospital and brought me back to life. Thirty days later, I left the hospital, and I bought two packs of caramel cigarettes. Now, that's insanity. But I had a true physical addiction to nicotine. I don't need to go to Nicotine Anonymous. I just did what AAs do. I suited up, showed up, and did everything I do today. And I do absolutely nothing today out of the ordinary to keep myself from smoking cigarettes, except I don't pick up a cigarette. What I do is I take care of my alcoholism because I have the I have the emotional tangent here. You can find everything about me is tied to that, Shelby. My emotions govern my entire life. 
I don't care how reasonable and rational I am, if I feel like doing something, I'm going to do it. It's like, if you tell me I don't, I can't, you, all you got to do is say, you can't do that, and I'll show you I damn well can. And it won't be long before I do it, neither. You can't make me if I don't want to, and I'll show you, pal. And if I don't do it, I make a million dollars. I still got to do it. If I've seen a wet paint sign on a park bench, I've got to know. I can't walk past it. If I see a sign that says wet paint, I'm going to go like this. God damn it! And then I'm going to have a resentment against the asshole to pay in the bank. Because you should have said wet paint. So the idea of step three is what constitutes our will in our lives. And in a, in a good book, page 27, it says this. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes are cast aside. A new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate us. That happens as we go through step four through nine. So when we speak of making a decision regarding our will and our lives in step three, we are suggesting the following new ideas to implement and take action upon. You might want to hear this. This is what they have suggested to me to take action upon. Uncover my old ideas and attitudes about life and life's events and become willing to let them go using the idea of substitution. Two, discover and discard the injurious effect produced in my life as a result of attempting to live by these ideas. And lastly, to discover and to recover by adopting new ideas and attitudes that I'm going to take action upon, which I may substitute for the old and Jewish ideas, thus letting go absolutely. Then on page 55 it said, we found the great reality deep down within us. So am I trying to do anything out here? AA is not about doing anything out there, although we do clean up, suit up, and show up, and shave up, and do stuff like that. Some of us do, because cleaning up the outside makes us feel good. Some people it don't. Some people let their hair grow. I'm not, no judgment there. If I had hair, I'd probably grow it, damn it. I'd cut it short because it's cute. The idea of substitution. So some of us don't really understand how step four is. And it's my opinion from my experience that if I really know how sick I am, do I have alcoholism? Am I just an alcoholic? Do I have this severe emotional disorder called alcoholism? Do I have this tremendous soul sickness they're talking about? Because if I do, I submit to you, I'll do anything you ask me to do. Even a fourth step. And a fourth step is scary. Because I've done some things I don't want anybody to know. And unless you can convince me I need to do it to save my life, I wish it was to save yours. But if you can convince me it's going to save my life, I'll do it. Because I'm ultimately selfish. If you tell, if, if, if James was to say, Wayne, you ought to talk to Todd, you could save his life. You know what I say? Screw Todd. <laughs> Let him die. Probably deserves it anyway, knowing what he did. See, I'm not a man of virtue. Unless you're watching me. And I say, oh, oh, yeah, Todd, Todd, come here. <laughs> you hear what I'm saying? So, I'm making a decision to turn my will and my life over to God. I have to get rid of my old ideas. I have to get new ideas. And I have to tap into that great reality deep down inside because that really is the true power source. Now, that is obscured by what? Calamity, pomp, and worship. It's like doors. Here's the door. Do you remember that poem we read? Here's the door to God. And there's some dressed up dude here. 
with glasses probably. Lots of hair. Standing by the door. Ready to welcome us in. However, we've got three other doors here that block us. And until we get those three doors, we can't see the door to God. It's called calamity, pop, and worship of other things. And when I make a decision to turn my will and my life over, what I'm really doing is making a decision to go through those doors. And it's a tough process. It's not an easy thing to do, especially if this is unconscious and we can't see it. Because I don't want to give up my willful ways. I think they're good for me sometimes. I think I should get my way. I think I should go into to the nine-item checkout line with 27 and pull out a credit card. Why not? I didn't ask to be born. <laughs> you hear the whole idea? Every time somebody got in my face, my reaction was the same. Look, asshole, I didn't ask to be put here. Get out of my face! I need help. By the time I got done with my third step in my seventh year of sobriety, I was absolutely willing to do anything. And I didn't know how to do it. I remember, I, let me give you a little history background on the 12 and 12. We've got time. I, I went to New York in my seventh year of sobriety after I was six months in California with Clancy because I wanted to find out what the truth was about Bill Wilson and his depression. How many of you have heard all kinds of rumors about Bill Wilson and his depression? I heard it all, and I even heard he died depressed. One of the old-timers in my home group, innocently in Illinois, innocently said to me, Listen, we are tired of you. You know, Bill Wilson died depressed. Why can't you? Why can't you just be okay depressed? Just accept it and move on. And that was at that seven-year point when I, was, when I was going to see the doctor. So what happened is I went to New York. I got, I got tired of hearing the rumors. And by the way, I don't want you to believe me. By God, come up here and look for yourself. Because I didn't want to, I got tired of hearing all the red, you know, so many people said, well, I sat in a meeting with Bill Wilson and I knew him well. And then they would tell me their opinion and try to use Bill Wilson's name as leverage. Don't use my name, don't use anybody's name. Go get that information for yourself if you're in trouble. Because that's how this works. We go get our own experience and then we share that experience. We try not to share our opinions. So I went to New York and I got into the libraries and I uncovered all this written work between uh, uh, Father Ed Dowling, Reverend Sam Shoemaker, and Dr. Harry Tebow. They're the ones who wrote the 12 and 12. We give Bill the credit, but it was them talking through Bill's hand. Here's what happened. In 1947, started in 1946, a guy by the name of Ed Webster, a religious fanatic, a member of AA, decided that he would write his religious interpretation of the 12 steps to better help the whole group of Alcoholics Anonymous. However, he didn't seek AA group conscious approval. He just wrote the book and then he sold it to Hazelden. It's called The Little Red Book. I'm not standing in judgment of it. I'm just telling you it's a very religious book. And so the fellowship was appalled by that because, number one, he didn't seek our approval. And number two, it's very religious in, in intent. And we're not a religious society. So the fellowship got afraid. Now, I'm sure you've heard that Bill Wilson wrote the book to make money. He wrote the book because his ego was involved. Those, that's all nonsense. This is what I read in, in their writing. Bill Wilson wrote the 12 and 12 because we asked him to. We were so shocked by what Ed Webster and his friend Collier did that they asked Bill Wilson to write his modern-day essays on the 12 steps, just like you know how we got our new daily meditation book? What, what's it called? Daily Reflections. That came as a result of Hazelden's 24-hour-a-day book. Now, I personally think the 24-hour-a-day book is a good book, but we came out with our daily reflections to counteract that book, so we would have one of our own that's AA-approved. 
Because you know, we want to protect our society very stringently. Well, when he came out with that little red book, it, it was titled something else at the time, Phil Wilson was asked to write essays on the 12 steps. Bill didn't know what to write because he knew a secret nobody else knew. You know what that secret was? Bill Wilson had never taken the 12 steps he wrote. You know how he's depressed? And the depression was growing? He was trying to live on that spiritual experience he had in Towns Hospital. And it, but while he had that, who would, who would dare challenge him? The room lit up with a white light. He saw God for crying out loud. Who's going to say, Bill, you're a little depressed, pal. you got to work the steps. The truth of the matter is, is Father Red Dowling knew the truth. Father Red Dowling was his spiritual sponsor. So Bill Wilson went to, to Father Ed and said, will you help me write the essays on the 12 steps? I'll paraphrase. Father Ed says, well, I'll help you write them if you'll agree to take them. Father Ed knew he didn't because Bill Wilson was still raked with faulty emotional dependencies based upon people, places, and things for his self-esteem, self-worth, and approval. And Father Dowling knew if he didn't get rid of those faulty emotional dependencies, he would never recover what we know now is called alcoholism. So Father Ed Dowling agreed, and he got Tom Bowers, a feature writer, to write the book, to do the editing of it. And Dr. Harry Keeble and Reverend Sham, Sam Shoemaker put spiritual ideas that were codified in the 12 steps. And during the process from 1947 to 1951, Bill Wilson took the 12 steps with Father Ed Dowling as they wrote them. And in 1955, he was, he was faced with his greatest decision of his life. Father Ed told him in 1952 that he had to let go of AA. And if you read the history of AA, you have to have all this history read so that you understand. In 1952, Father Ed Dowling said, Bill Wilson, you've got to become a member of AA and quit being the co-founder. Or you're going to die. And so from 1952 and 53, when the 12 and 12 was published, Bill and the rest of the committees put in motion what is now known as general service. And in 1955, at Keele Auditorium in St. Louis, Missouri, Bill Wilson turned over Alcoholics Anonymous to us. And in 1956, it's recorded and documented that Bill Wilson's depression lifted and never came back to the day he died. And he did the 12 steps with Father Ed Dine, and we'll talk about this afternoon about how he did steps 10, 11, and 12 with Father Ed. The Father Ed took him through the 12 steps, all the way through, doing the three-column, four-step inventory in the big book. Use the big book, but see, now he's got the 12 and 12, so he had added symptoms. And Bill Wilson was able to see that all of his problems stemmed in faulty emotional dependency placed upon people, places, and things for his self-worth, self-esteem, and approval. And he had to rid himself of all faulty emotional dependencies. Doesn't that sound like old ideas? Bill Wilson created new ideas that became old ideas and almost killed him sober. So that brings us to step four through nine, where Wilson found his freedom. And what I did was I just did it the way he did it with Father Red Dowling. I didn't add nothing, take nothing away. There's no Wayne's way. There's no Wayne's world. I wish I could say that I came up with something special and unique. But all I did in my eight years of sobriety is I took the 12 steps the way Bill Wilson took them with Father Ed Dowling, and the result for me was the same. I overcame my depression. I want to tell you this. In my ninth year of sobriety, I became a police officer. Now, that's not supposed to happen. See, I've been arrested twice for attempted murder. I've been institutionalized 17 times in the psychiatric system, and I got to become a policeman. Now, some people feel that's a good experience on the job training. Nine years over, my depression's gone. It's gone. I don't know where it went. I went from 146 pounds to 242 pounds. And I started not to be a control freak. The need to control people began to dissipate. A lot of stuff was going on in my life that I wanted to react to, and I found myself almost unable to overreact to it. The program was taking me. 
And I know it had to do with steps four through nine because during that process I was looking for a different set of symptoms. I was looking at a condition known as alcoholism no more. I wasn't looking at Wayne as evil. Wayne is dark-hearted. And I'll tell you why. Because I came to believe I have alcoholism. I came to believe during my fourth step. Now step two says you come to believe. I didn't know where that happened. Came to believe happened to me in the fourth step. That's what I came to believe. We'll use the big book. You all got your big book, maybe? If you don't, you all know this. Now, there's only three columns in the big book, right? There's only three columns in the big book. Okay. And there is only three columns in the big book. So we're going to do three columns. We're going to use Mr. Brown just because I think that's so goofy. Okay. When we're doing the fourth step, we're looking for three things. We're looking at how resentment dominated us, how our fear eroded any chance of emotional stability, and how our sexual proclivities caused separation between me and you and me and God. Remember, throughout the inventory, we're looking for one thing, and primarily one thing only, but we look at it from a different perspective. We're looking for how we're separated. Remember, Chuck Chamberlain told me 21 years ago that my only problem in life, and the only problem I ever will have, is conscious and unconscious separation from God and from you. And anything I do that causes separation between me and you causes separation between me and my God, because I don't want to get religious on you, but I believe what the big book says. It says deep down in every man, woman, child, from no idea of God. So if I step on your toes, I step on God's toes too, which causes separation between me and you and me and him. What happens? I'll get into this in the tenth step, but let's just say I'm just happy, joyous, and free. Right? I'm just having a good old time. And I inadvertently step on your toes. Gossip about you. And you find out. What have I just done? I've just crossed separation with you. Okay? So I've got separation with you. Do I have separation with God? Absolutely. And I can't just go to God. I've got to come to you and make an amend. And that'll clear away that separation. Step four is the process of uncovering, discovering, discarding those elements of separation. How am I separated from you? And remember, in resentment, who are we looking at? We're looking at what people did to us, aren't we? I'm not going to we are. We're looking, you're shaking your head no. Is that just a gesture or do you believe that? Don't, don't be embarrassed. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. See, when I'm looking at resentment, I'm resentful at you because you did this to me and it affected my life. I'm looking at how you hurt me, ain't I? Am I going to get well? Or does that make me a victim? A big V, babe. I'm a victim in a big way. My resentment of this was a mile long. I'm going to tell you some things. And I don't mean to badmouth anybody in my family. But I had three men in my family, and they all took turns on me. I got locked up and chained up in the basement. I got chained up in the attic. I got beat regularly. I had broken bones when I was a kid. And I was just, had a spin put on my personality in a big way. And I was a victim. And how do I come to AA and not be a victim? My sponsor says, you can't be a victim. You won't get sober. But I am a victim. And then he said, you're missing part of the equation. He said, all you're doing is affects mine. He says, there's an additional part to part three. Not column four. He used to think that. He said, there's an additional part to column three that I'm missing. And it's my part. And the personality traits I've developed. And I'll tell you why it's important. Remember the old idea? Bear in mind. Always bear in mind the old idea. Because that's our saving grace. From step four all the way through step twelve, it's all about old ideas. It's all about how I think and feel and react to that. That determines whether or not I'm going to pick up a drink. 
So Mr. Brown is resentful. I'm resentful of Mr. Brown. He has attention to my wife. And have you ever seen any of that stuff going on? I, I thought I was delusional about my brother's attention to my wife until he took her. Attention to my wife? Brown told my wife about my mistress. Would you be really upset? He's after my job. Now remember, it says fancy to real. See, now it affects my what? It says it affects my sex relations, self-esteem, sex relations, self-esteem, security, self-esteem, and fear. Okay? But what else does it affect? In that additional part to column four, which is not column four, it's part three. Here's what you're looking for. I got them broke down. By the way, there's one of these available if you want one. I, I don't make no money on them. These are my outline books that I make up for when I do these workshops. I don't make no money on them, so if you want one, you see me. But this is the addendum to column three. See, that's what makes me no longer be a victim. It gives me freedom. I'll tell you why. In part A, it said circle the Y if I cause harm. Why am I doing that? Over here. Because we're going to do an eight-step list, right? Now, Mr. Brown paid attention to my wife. It affected my life, made me insecure, and it screwed up my sexual relations at home. Did I do anything to hurt Mr. Brown? You're damn right. I shot him in the foot. But it hurt me more than it did him. Okay? So, yes, I did cause harm to him because of the resentment I had for him. Okay? What's the exact nature of the harm caused? Shot him in the foot. Now, what's the exact nature? Is it mental, emotional, physical, sexual, financial, social, or personal? Well, it affected him physically, didn't it? It affected him mentally, emotionally, too, didn't it? It provoked fear in him, and it made him change the way he thought about me. Maybe. Okay? And then what shortcomings may have been engaged as a result of this resentment? Now, how many of you think character defects and shortcomings are the same thing? Haven't you heard people say that they're the same thing, he just changed it so it wouldn't be redundant? Sorry, not true. How many of you think we have 50 or more character defects? 20 or more. Does anybody know how many we really have? According to our literature, seven. Pride, anger, envy, greed, lust, sloth, and gluttony. It's in the 12 and 12. And you know what our shortcomings are? We have six major shortcomings. Selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, inconsiderate, resentful, and afraid. They're not the same thing. Because, you see, we find out early on that we're in threat by instincts. Now, we all have natural instincts for life, for safety, for security, survival, and ambitions. And if those instincts become threatened in me, what happens? What happens if somebody scares you? What do you do? You either run or go right at it, don't you? You're the kind of guy going to go right at it, ain't you? See, if I, if I was getting that guy's face right there with intent, he's going to do one of two things. He's going to jack my jaw or run for cover. He's going to do one or the other, but he's going to do something because he has felt a threatening presence. Right? Right. <laughs> See, Todd's my target. How did my, my sponsor intimidated me? He'd get in my face and scare me. He didn't know that. He just did it. But anytime someone encloses himself, I become threatened. And when I become threatened instinctually, I react. As does everybody in the world. It's just, if you're not an alcoholic suffering from alcoholism, you probably react sanely and normally, don't you? Like, hmm, you're interesting. And then you move away. Or if the threat's real, you react according to the amount of threat that's present. 
It's like hearing anybody say that fear stands for false evidence appearing real. Have you ever had a gun stuck in your face? I have. That's real, baby. The fear is real. It's real. And it's how I react to it. So I've got instincts for security, for safety, for ambition, to be safe, to be secure in my own presence. In the form of it says that the greatest thing I have is to be secure in my own person. I've never been. You know what that means? Not to be afraid. Irrationally. Not to be threatened if the woman I love is talking to another man. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that means? Especially if I don't know his name. She's up there talking to him. What's going on? I don't know him. Better find out who he is. Better find out why she's talking to him. You hear the music? The noise is going on. I'm not leaving you women out either. Some of you have seen your man talking to a blue-eyed blonde. What's she doing here? She's cuter than me. She's talking to her for He's paying more attention to her than he is me. And you know the music starts playing and pretty soon you got to fight. And you know the truth of the matter is? If people are just people, probably talking. But in my mind, it's an event. Because I'm not secure in my own person. I have no sense of security. And what we gain through steps four through nine is that sense of security. <clears throat> so after this, why I'm resentful of Mr. Brown, the cause, and how it affects me. Because now I see how his, that resentment is affecting me. I've got to do something about that. Because resentment's the number one offender. It causes separation. I have separation. What's the solution for resentment? There's only one. Only one. Sort of. He said surrender. It's sort of. I'm looking for a different word. There's one solution for resentment. you know what it is? Mm-mm. Forgiveness. There's a lot of roads. There's a lot of ladders. There's a lot of runs to the ladder of forgiveness. Understanding. Trying to do something good for them. But ultimately, to get over resentment, I have to forgive. Now, how do you forgive someone who did what they did to me? How do you do that? I didn't deserve that. And I, I'm not even telling you the tip of the iceberg is stuff that's done to me as a kid. <clears throat> Eating them milk bones was a mission. You know why? Because underlying all that pain that was going on in my life. I was obsessed with those milk bones because it distracted me from the horrible things that were going on to me in that home. And you know what? I was in an alcoholic home. How do I get over that? One counselor told me I should have my parents arrested. So that that would free me from the enslavement of the resentment. That person ought to be kicked out of therapy. I'll tell you why. I did not force that. We're not going to get into Tom's ABC yet. We're going, to, we're going to do this part. When I listed all my resentments, there's nothing there about me. It's all about what you did to me. Everything is about what you did to me and sex harm that I caused. And I couldn't see it. And if I hadn't done an eight-step the way I'm going to show you how I did it after lunch, I wouldn't be free today. I just want you to hear that now. So when we get into the, when we get into the, the additional part of the third column, find out there's a lot more growth. So I want to list the shortcoming. Was I being selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, exert, resentful, or friendly? And then over in part B it says, write in the old idea, relevance to the harm caused. What was I thinking? What was I thinking? What was my old idea? That Brown shouldn't be giving attention to my wife. Doesn't that sound like that's what it is? He might get her if he talks to her. Does that sound like an old idea? He has no right to be talking to my wife. I own her. 
Well, but that's how we think. I'm not going to candy coat it. That's how we think. That's my property. What's a new idea? Her life is none of my business. That's a new idea. Right here, part B. New, new idea to replace the old idea. My wife can talk to anybody she wants to. It is none of my business. That's a new idea. It's hard to practice. Especially when he's got a lot of hair. It's hard to practice. New idea. Okay? Include any feelings of separation this situation has caused. Okay? Does he have separation with Brown? Absolutely. He's separated from Brown because he's mad at him. Who else is he separated with? Absolutely. Now he's separated from his wife and Mr. Brown and any other man that talks to her now. So he has separation. Does that mean he's powerless? Absolutely. He is now into the world all by himself. He has now caused calamity, which is what comes from resentment. Calamity. He now has begun to put obscurity between him and God. Now, will one resentment do it? Probably not. But how about, how many resentments do we have? Ten? Fifty? A hundred? Two hundred? How many resentments do I have when I'm facing the fourth step? But they're, they're like each brick. Each brick. Is resentment in that wall to God. And I've got to take him out brick by brick by brick. That's the only way to get to the door. Is to take out the bricks one by one of the wall that resentment, fear, and my sexual behaviors cause. And that's what I have to do. And there's only one way to do it. And that's to get honest with myself by taking a look at my behavior. And not standing on what they did. So, so here these guys are. Done all these terrible things to me. And I'm a victim. And I'm told I can't stay sober if I stay a victim. So... When I was doing my fifth step with Father Pat, uh, and we did my part over here, what did I do? How did I cause harm? He said, you know, you've listed a lot of terrible things you've done to these people. And I said, yeah, he didn't candy coat it. He said, you're evil. He says, I've not seen a darker heart than yours from what you just told me. You know, a lot of guys say, eh, well, I fell asleep. Well, this guy stayed awake. <laughs> and alert. And, and, and when I left his office... I was worse than I went in. I was worse. The desperation, the fear, the self-loathing. And just before I left the room, he called me back. He said, let me ask you a question. See, they, they do this to you. And they catch you off guard. He says, let me ask you a question. All those things you told me you did to get even, he says, and they were terrible. Do you think you would have done those things if you'd had a loving relationship with your loving Father God? Now, see, I wasn't expecting that. I thought he called me to tell me I couldn't come to church no more. So that's too bad to be with the good people. And uh, and I said no. And that was the end of it. I knew I'd been forgiven. Because I knew the truth. Had I had a relationship with God, I wouldn't have done any of those terrible things. I would have done something the right way. I knew that. And I couldn't get out the door before he called me back again. He said, now i got another question for you. Do you believe that these people that did what they did to you would have done it if they had a loving relationship? Put their loving Father God. Asshole. <laughs> he took away my right to keep a resentment. Because since that day, though I try very hard, I can't keep a resentment. I try. I try hard. I do. When I don't like people, I don't like them a lot. <laughs> but I can't keep a resentment because I know that if they could do better, they would. That's what I learned from my fourth step and my fifth step. When I did my fifth step with Father Pat, he made it very clear. That if I was a child of God and acted like one, I wouldn't hurt you. And if you were a child of God and you acted like one, you wouldn't hurt me. And I was able to forgive my dad, my brother, 
my uncle, my brother-in-law, all them high school kids that abused me as a retarded kid. Well, I had a list. I had a death list. When I was in the retarded class, you know what you used to do with those retarded kids? They'd get us after school in the gym, and they'd tape our ankles together with athletic tape, tie a rope to it, and run us up the rings and leave us there for the janitors to find us. I loved them. I do gotta admit that I had to make amends after I got even. Okay, now, here's the critical part of Part B. I don't want to get bogged down in this. But here's the critical part of Part B. Uh, it says, then list your most dominant negative personality trait. Now, there we're getting into something. We have seven defensive characters, and we have six shortcomings. Here's the interesting thing. We have no discipline, right? We are undisciplined kids. Undisciplined children is what the big book says. We are, undiscipl- we are undisciplined a lot. And we have to develop discipline. I don't like that word. It sounds authoritarian. But I have to get spiritual discipline. How do I do that? I have seven defective character and they're all engaged. I'm running on pride. How many of us want to admit we're wrong? How many in this room can get their hand up and say, I was wrong the minute they make the mistake? I know better than that, Joey. Sometimes I can do it within a couple hours. There's been a few times where I said I was wrong because I wanted to look good and then I was wrong again. <laughs> I mean, if I, if I, if I say, Todd, you're a real asshole. I might be right, but I can't do it publicly. And as soon as I do, I might only be one other person in the room. And is that, hey, Todd, you're all right. As soon as I see them, because I want to look good at all costs. Trouble is, I have to, in the fourth step, I have to uncover how that affects me, threatens me. So I want you to think this way. Step four is used in column three to uncover the threat to my security. the way I feel about myself. That's all it is. There's a threat. And the harm I cause is the reaction to that threat. I'm resentful of you because you did this to me. It threatened me. I retaliated. Very simple. So I have to get to a point where I learn to act and react differently to what I think you did to me. And that's what the fourth step begins to prepare us to do in step ten. So I get through all that stuff and I take my fifth step. Now I've got to uncover my personality traits. Now, how many of them do you think we have? Fools! Abrasive, aggressive, ambivalent. We go on the list. we got all kinds of personality traits that we pick up through the years, don't we? That's called the way we react to the people at home. How many of us have been bitter? How many of us wake up caustic? Or unhappy? Or like a wet blanket? My, my favorite was number 48, retaliatory. was one of my major personality defects, or uh, personality traits. Unforgiving, temperamental, manipulative, irritable, irreverent, irresponsible. The list goes on and on and on. So what I have to do is I have to uncover in Part B which negative personality trait was involved. Now, in this, in this outline booklet, I've got 63 listed. Now, those 63 were the most common 63 that showed up in the over 500 inventories I've heard. These are the negative personality traits. And guess what? I've got almost all of them. And they erode my life. And how can you replace a negative personality trait? Well, you can't just zap it. So in the inventory process, when we get to step 10, you're going to find out how in column C, over here, 
you're going to take that negative trait and you're going to write in the positive trait. And it's right across from it. If you, if you get this outline booklet, you can just look at like number 29 is intolerant. What's the obvious solution? Learn tolerance, right? So if you write that down, is that going to do it? No. But if you take 20 different inventories and it keeps coming up the same damn thing, pretty soon it becomes a working part of my mind and all of a sudden I found myself acting and reacting sanely and normally, which means rather than be intolerant, I become tolerant. So it's the consistency of seeing the same thing over again and being willing to change and eventually we change because we're doing the inventory. We'll find that out in step 10. Okay, so then we go down to then, then with the most applicable spiritual principle you may apply to resolve your feelings of separation. So how can I get over this? What, what is the spiritual principle? What are the spiritual principles, do you know? And this is a test. You'll find them on page 56 in this book. Here's the 12 spiritual principles out of the Oscar group applied to the 12 steps. Honesty, hope, faith, and courage. Integrity, willingness, humility, love, patience, perseverance, awareness, discipline, and service. Which one would apply? Would be love. Because under love is forgiveness. Did you know that? Spiritually, I didn't know that. To love someone is to forgive them. I didn't know that. So, my brother who broke my arm and abused me, I'm going to love him? I can't do that. And my father said, yes, you can. So, in order to forgive Brown, I have to learn to love him. How do I do that? How do I love him? Well, I found out in AA that love means to do for and expect nothing from. How do you like that? To love means, my God, Sean, there's hope for you. I like that. I'd be putting me to sleep too, I'll tell you. To love someone, I didn't know this because I knew nothing about love. Uh, this is all a mix of the fourth and fifth and sixth step. I hope you picked up on that. Um, I didn't know that, but I was diagnosed at the age of 18 being told I'd never love nothing. They said I had the incapacity and inability to, to extend or feel the emotion of love. They diagnosed me as psychopath after I tried to kill my family under the influence of tequila. That doctor said I would never feel love. So they sent me to Vietnam where they thought they could use a personality like mine. And I came back a little disarranged, I could say. And I can, test, I can testify, I've never felt love. Never gave it. I was a taker. And I, I became a vile, dark, gloomy human doing. And I didn't think it was going to change. I didn't think there was hope for me. I mean, they tried everything. My psych report read, Wayne does not play well with pets. <laughs> I ain't going into that. <laughs> but I can truthfully tell you I love AA. And I know what I mean by that. You know what I mean by I love AA? How can you love an inanimate object? But when I tell you I love AA, I can tell you I love AA. How do you know? How do you know I love AA? I'm here. I'm here. Well, I love Matt too, but Matt asked me to come up here and do this. But I did it because I love AA. And the reason I know I love AA is because I'm willing to do whatever AA asked me to do to be at service at any time, irregardless of how it affects my personal life. I didn't know I loved AA. Now I know that that's the proof. How many of us love another human being and think that means do everything we can for them and ask them nothing in return? <laughs> Might cause some controversy in the marriage tonight. Really true. We'll find out in steps 10, 11, and 12 how that really works to heal relationships. And sometimes how it doesn't heal relationships. But it all starts in step four. 
where I find out how my resentment caused by what I think they did to me, how it affects me, my security, makes me feel threatened. Do you know what I mean by threat? Do you have your own perception of what to be threatened means? Sometimes you think it's a physical threat or it's an emotional threat. Maybe it's something that goes unsaid that could be implied to mean you're not going to talk to me anymore. How many of you have had lovers that they give you the silent treatment? You know what that means. But it makes you crazy in the head because the silent treatment is the worst. Because it leads me to interpret what you think. And I have ESPN. See, like right now, Matt is thinking, I'm the sickest man in the room. And it's not true because he is. I know that. But I know that's what he's thinking. So I get to find out, see, the additional part of, of column three, the ABCs, is critical. Because I get to find out how my selfishness, how my anger, how my dishonesty, how my fear plays a part in my reaction to the threat. And how my personality traits that I've adopted over my years, how I'm unforgiving, unfeeling, insensitive, uncaring, intolerant, intolerable, how that played a part in that threat, and how I have to replace those with new ideas. Is it possible? It must be. If it's not done in step four, it's only uncovered in step four. What we're doing is uncovering and discovering that which blocks us off from the will of the power greater. And in step five, we admit that to another human being. And we let that go. Let's see. Any questions? Yeah, Linda. The reaction to the threat. Retaliation is a personality trait. The negative personality trait and the old idea. In other words, see, whenever, whenever you have a reaction to a threat, my way of thinking kicks in unconsciously without any help from my mind whatsoever. I have already formed an idea in a nanosecond. I have reacted to that threat through a shortcoming in, in part A. My negative personality trait takes over. I become just a real shit. There's no other way to put it. I just become a real... Oh, well. Right? And then part C is where the new idea and the, and the positive personality trait. And so in step four, that doesn't fix it. I'm not going to mislead you. That does not fix it. It only exposes it to us. I can't fight what I can't see, can I? I can't go after anything I don't know is there. It's like I tell anybody I know. If I know what's going on, I can handle it. But if I don't see it coming, I'm scared. I can handle anything I know is coming. If I've got some kind of a sickness, I can deal with it if I know the facts. But if, if I don't know... How many of you have had a blood test taken where they're looking for something and you don't know what it is? How many? Does it make you comfy? Well, how about if you know what you got and they're just testing your blood to see how you're doing? Ain't no big deal, is it? You've accepted what it is. I remember I went in for HIV test. I'm going to tell you something. My last arrest as a police officer was a quite a cold of disturbance. And I got there and she was out of control. And, and as soon as I touched her, she went crazy. And she was going to go through the glass. And I should have let her go. I don't mean no harm by that, but I should have let her go because that's the rules on the street. If you're fighting with somebody with AIDS, you just get out of the way and let it go. But I didn't. I reached around her to protect her face, and she bit me. And she bit through my hand and drew blood. And I was doing that to protect her from going through the glass. It didn't even occur to me she had AIDS. I just did a natural reaction. It was a good thing to do. 
But when she bit me, I knew I was in trouble. And uh, my partner took her down to the jail. She died three months later from AIDS. And I had to go through tests every six months. I didn't have it. I didn't have AIDS. I didn't get it. Don't have it today. But you know what? Every time I take that test, I just know I'm going to get it. I ain't got it. Now, that was years ago. But the fear that I might overrode my concern for her. Well, I didn't care what happened after that. Matter of fact, if she wasn't dead, I'd have sued her. It's all about me. You understand what I'm saying? And so fear could make me irrational, even when the fear could be real. But I took the test, and waiting for that test was excruciating. The first time. Now, see, there's a moral to this. By the time I got to my sixth test, it was unnecessary. But I did it again anyway. And now I take them every six months just because I want to. Because it was a terrifying experience. That was back in Iowa. But you know what they said? They said, you can't, you can't get aid from a bite. I didn't know that. I didn't ask that question. A doctor asked me, did you know you can't get aid from a bite? I said, nope. And then I felt stupid and blamed them because they're responsible to give all the information necessary to a patient's well-being. See, it's always about me blaming them. Julie? That's an intense step. That could be an old idea, personality trait, taking stuff personal. Being sensitive. Being sensitive is taking stuff personal. In my opinion, that's... If, if you're doing if you're doing the outline I use, you would group sensitive under a personality trait, but that's what it would be taking things personal. So, then, um, so the only way to forgive somebody for resentment, you know, that's the only way to get over resentment to forgive. Yeah, well, there, and there's steps to that. So what, you have to understand how they felt at the time. No, you'll come to understand. No, you'll, the book the book gives you the direction how to do it. It tells you to understand that they were sick. And you have to treat them like a spiritually sick friend. You wouldn't treat a spiritually sick friend that way. In other words, you're going to forgive them because they're sick. It's right in the big book. They're spiritually sick. But I didn't grasp what they meant by that because I thought they were a little sicker than that because they got me. But the truth of the matter is, is I have to treat them like a, a sick friend. And how would you treat a sick friend? You'd visit them, wouldn't you? You'd send them flowers, maybe? A card? Go visit them in the hospital, wouldn't you? That's how you treat a sick friend. But would you do that if they hurt you as bad as they hurt some of us? Well, my sponsor said, well, you know, if they hurt you bad, you've got to forgive them, but you don't got to invite them to do it again. And that's what I did. I sidestepped my family. I didn't let them hurt me no more. But you know the truth of the matter is that they all outgrew that nonsense. And by the time I was a grown man, my brother, what good would it have done to me to, to retaliate on my brother? He sold for 18 years and never made amends to me. Never felt it necessary. He's got a wife and three kids. Should I go tell him? I mean, what would that would that really solve my conflict by making him get divorced and lose his three kids? Would that would that resolve anything? He's not doing to a kid what he did to me anymore. He grew up, doesn't do it anymore. That's called rationale. My sponsor helped me with that. I was able to see that in the inventory work. And when I wanted to retaliate against him, I had some well-meaning therapists telling me that they had to be confronted with this. You're responsible if they hurt anybody else. That's bull. I'm not responsible for what any other human being does no matter what somebody else tells me. I'm only responsible for how I act and react. And if they hurt somebody else again, it's on them, not me. Now, some people would tell you that's not true, that I have a moral obligation. 
Oh, I'm an AA. This is Sweden, pal. We don't report nobody to nobody. I don't even know you're here. You know, when I was a police officer, I would sit in meetings, and I'd be sitting next to a felon that I knew was wanted, and he would never know I was a police officer. And that was a real risk for people like me to take, because if, it would, if he would have left there and hurt somebody, and they would have found out I was in that room with him, I could have been fired and held accountable. But you know what? In AA, there is no leniency for that. I don't, whatever your opinion is on that, in AA, it's Wayne B. You don't know who I am. And when I leave here, you have to honor that, because AA is the last place for me to go. And if I don't feel safe in here to tell my worst secrets, I've got nowhere to go. So I can't address anything outside this room. Now, there's a lot of people that are codependent, who have manic alanonism. I don't mean that negatively, where they think we've got to take care of the world, and that they should report child abuse when they hear it in a meeting. I've had people I know been reported. You know what? That's none of our business. We're not here to be reporters. We're here to be supporters. Support each other. I'm not advocating dismissal of that. I'm just saying to you that we live in AA, and it's the only safe place we've got. One for another. Step six. Is Honey looking for you, Sheila? Is he looking for you? Is he looking for you, babe? Well, it makes me feel like I'm home. I keep looking at that clock. The clock says 11.15. It's 12.15. Now where was I? Step six. I'm entirely ready to have God remove our defects of character. How many of us are entirely ready to have God remove our defects of character? Pride, anger, injury, greed, lust, sloth, and gluttony. My God, if he removes my lust, you know what that means, don't you? No more of that. I'm joining a monastery. How many of you think that way? Oh my God, lust. So that means lust is dead, right? Nope, every human being's got it. I, do you, let me ask you this. Do you think if it didn't feel good, you'd have sex? I mean, think about it. I think God gave this pleasurable experience to us knowing that that is the only way we would reproduce. I'm going to tell you something. I'm not trying to be gross, but if I touched a woman and it burned my hand, I wouldn't touch you again. Well, maybe not a lot. I mean, the experience has to be pleasurable or we wouldn't do it. That's really true. It's really a wonderful experience, in my opinion. I love sex. The problem is, is I have to do it the right way. And I'm not talking about positions. I'm talking about the right way. I don't have the right to hurt another person, take advantage of them, manipulate them, or use them for my own personal satisfaction. And that's where the God-intended instinct, in my opinion, exceeds my desires. And that's when lust becomes a defect. Like pride. The book says there is no good pride. Pride. Where I feel good about myself. Some people call that pride. Some is called self-esteem, self-worth. If you have low self-esteem, do esteemable actions and it'll find you. You don't need to find it. Anger. What about anger? How many people in here have had mad-ons? Gotten angry. Come on, tell the truth. How many in this room have gotten angry? Thank you. I was going to say, if you didn't raise your hand, you're a liar. No offense. You know what's interesting about anger? Once, once the defect of anger takes over, you can't unpunch the punch. Jerry, have you ever hit somebody and tried to unhit them in full motion? Have you ever gone like this? Oh, 
You can't, once you, once the defect of anger engages, we can't stop it. It's, it's a done deal. Gotta go through it. That's where step 10 comes in. What we have to do is we have to catch the impulse. Have you ever been told that you have a lack of impulse control? I was told that every time I was institutionalized. Your problem is, is you lack impulse control. You're right. (laughs) Envy. Envy. How many of us in this room are happy when other people are successful? Oh, 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 Joe, I'm so happy. Let me tell you something. Something happened to me a few months back. I'm going to share it with you. I don't want to leave the room, but I know it will. I was at a meeting I wasn't going to go to. I gave a talk I didn't want to give and got offered a part in a TV series. I'm not an actor. The guy says, are you an actor? I said, nope. He says, you ever acted? I said, nope. He says, you want to? And I said, okay. He said, do you want to be on blah, 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 blah? I thought he's out of his mind. And I said, well, yeah. And that's what I'm doing now. Now, in my home group, there's a lot of actor wannabes, aren't there, Joe? Did you feel any envy? Well, you feel, don't lie to me, Joe. <laughs> Joe wants to be an actor. I don't want to be an actor. And I can see the people in my home group that have been separating themselves from me because I got it and they didn't. And I didn't even, I'm not even trying and I got it. That's envy. And it's caused separation with us. Now, Joe and I don't have any separation because he got over it. But I understand that, Indy. I wanted to play pro baseball, and I couldn't make it because I was a little unbalanced. <laughs> but I wanted to play baseball, and a couple of my friends made it. I didn't. I was envious of them, and therefore I can't be their friend. So we have to look for the eroding element of envy, because when I have envy for something you've accomplished, I can't be your pal. Greed. We all know what greed is. That ain't just about money. That's about wanting more than my fair share. In excess, anything. Sloth. 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 Procrastination. Five syllables for sloth. There ain't nothing worth putting off tomorrow, something I have no idea what I want to do today. Just put it off. I'll quit drinking. Tomorrow. You know, it's pretty late today. I'll find a job. Tomorrow. Procrastination. And my favorite is gluttony. I turn into a pig. I went off. And now all those things are not too bad until we take them to their unintended purpose and they exceed what God wants. And step six is my being ready. How do I get ready? This is what I didn't know. Do you know that that's where I got ready? It was in the fourth and fifth step? Did you know that? I didn't know that. See, I got to discover in column three, affects my, the defective character that's involved every time. And I got to see how those defective character caused separation in my life. And by the time I got done with my fifth step, I was ready to have that nonsense stop. I was ready. I was tired of it. Every time I turned around, my pride was getting in my way. I mean, I lost loving relationships because I was too proud to say I'm sorry. I just couldn't say it. Fonzie was my enigma, if you will. <laughs> no, I'm wrong. No, if I say I'm sorry, it'll fix everything. I can't say I'm sorry. That's called false pride. Because any kind of pride that stops me from clearing away separation is false. Separates me from God. 
and an angry outburst. The book says that a tirade can cause separation for years with another human. One angry word. That's why they say uh, prudence with, how's it go with the uh, pen and tongue? Restraint of pen and, pen and tongue. How many times have I wanted to not say something I've said? How many of you have been engaged in a discussion with your loved one? And you know there's something on the tip of your tongue that you shouldn't say. And while he or she's in your face, I'm not going to say it, I'm not going to say it, I'm going to say, Bitch! Kill me back! I'm going to say it, I'm going to say it. Huh, I mean, the dialogue is endless. And, I, and then once you say it, <laughs> give it back! I didn't mean it, honey. <laughs> How many of us have been affected by that at home? And we can't say I'm sorry. Something stops us. I submit to you we're going to learn in step 10 how we can go off and correct that by using the steps so that I can come back and say, not I'm sorry, but I was wrong and I hurt you. I'll try not to do that again. Because that's sincere. After I've inventoried it and looked at it and acknowledged my part and not said nothing to you about what I think your part was. Because if you come to me and you say I'm wrong, you've just disarmed me. And you'll probably get me to say, I was wrong about part of it too. But if you come back telling me what my part of it was, and then you say you're sorry, get away from me, bucko. Because you're just blaming me still. And you say, even if I'm wrong, I won't admit it. So we get to take a look in step six. Uh, we have become entirely ready to have God remove all, all our defects. And I submit to you that if we do a fourth step and a fifth step, the way it's outlined in the big book, and use the symptoms in the 12 and 12 for understanding and clarity, I suggest to you that everybody in this room will be completely, totally, and entirely ready to have all the defects removed because now I understand what I'm trying to do. What am I trying to do? I'm trying to clear the separation from the power. That's all. Nothing more complicated than that. Remember, Reacting to a threat, trying to clear away the separation. It's that simple what the fourth step is. We complicate it with a whole bunch of fear and rhetoric. But the reality is when you when you synthesize step four down those most common denominators, you have action, perceived threat, reaction, now I've got to clear away the separation. How do I do that? Well that's where step eight and nine comes in. We'll find that out. But see before we get to step eight and nine we have a critical factor involved. We have our defective character, and we have our shortcomings in the way. And if I don't own up to my if I don't own up to my defective character, and come to understand how my pride is going to stop me from making amends to you, that's why it's important to take a fifth step with someone who knows what they're doing. See, a fifth step is critical. If all you if all you believe the fifth step is is listening to somebody, well, for some cases that's all it is, because some people just give a confessional. But the big book tells us to make sure we do this fifth step with someone who understands our mission. And since the big book was written, we've learned a lot more. We, in the 12 and 12, it uses the word sponsor. It doesn't say just a friend. It says a sponsor. Do this with your sponsor or a trusted friend. I'll tell you why. They have my best interest at heart, and they're not going to leave no stone unturned. They're going to tell me the truth as they see it. So they're going to go through this fourth step. When I'm doing the fifth step, and they're going to make notes. They're going to write down the old idea they hear. They're going to write down the negative personality traits. They're going to write down the shortcoming they hear, and they're going to write down the defects on a little notepad. 
And when you're all done with that, we're going to give it back to you, and you're going to have a list of your most glaring defects and the most problematic personality traits I've got, and then I get to take those to God in, in step six and say, God, remove these. I'm ready. Now, is that going to do it? Nope. That's the good news and the bad news. The good news is at least you're going to know what you're turning over. Now, it's sort of like saying that you're crazy, but you know why. <laughs> now, see, remember I told you all this is a preparation for the next step? Remember, this isn't the end. This is just step six and seven. Step six, I'm ready to have God remove my defects of character, and I know what they are. I'm going to ask God to do it. Step seven, and we'll talk about that after lunch. So guess what happens in step ten? It goes full circle. See, in step ten, which we'll talk about later, we're going to find out that that's where this really becomes reality. What we learn in step four and five, become willing to let go of in six and seven, we'll find out that in step ten, it becomes a reality. It becomes a day-by-day process. I'll get ahead of myself for a minute. How many of you do steps 10, 11, 12 every day? Every day. Every day. Without fail. No days off for good behavior. How many of you think that's perfectionism? How many people just don't know how to do it really? Absolutely. I've been doing steps 10, 11, 12 every day for 12 years now. Haven't missed a day. Now some people say I'm trying to be egotistical, bragging. It's not the truth. The book says that you took daily and daily. Since one through nine is clearing away the wreckage of our past. I want to clarify that. One through nine is all about clearing away that which obscures me from the power greater. If you stop at step nine, we're doomed. That's where Bill Wilson got in trouble. Bill Wilson did the six tenets of the Oscar group, didn't he? I mean, that's history. Bill Wilson took the six tenets of the Oscar group, and because he saw the loopholes, he wrote the twelve steps. He never took them. If you, if you take a look at the six tenets of the Oxford group, it doesn't give you anything for tomorrow. Steps 10, 11, and 12 is all about tomorrow. Today. And so, when Bill Wilson did the six tenets of the Oxford group, the day he took it was the last day he did it. Because he didn't have anything to build on. And he knew that. That's why he wrote Steps 10, 11, and 12. He knew James was going to come along. And he knew James was going to stop at tenet number six. And he wasn't going to do anything about the crap he's disturbing today. And so he knew he'd get drunk. So Bill Wilson says, you know what? I'm going to save James' life. I just ain't going to do it in the fact. And that's really true. So what we're doing is we're building a foundation. We're building a stepping stone is what we're really doing. So when we're doing step, if you sponsor people, especially, that's why I'm belaboring this, I guess, is if you sponsor people, it's critical to know this information because when we hear their fifth step, we have to be armed with the facts about their condition. We have to be looking for these things. Because the truth of the matter is, is we're trying to find a chink in their armor that they've built up. These, these, you know, some people say walls. That's pretty accurate. These, these blocks, these walls of self that block us off from the power greater. We have to help them find the chink in the wall so that we can get them to break through to find that power greater. And that's what our responsibility is as a sponsor. And some people don't want that responsibility so they don't sponsor people. But if they knew what they were missing, they would. If they're missing the glue that holds the texture of AA together, in my opinion. I'm so glad I work with alcoholics, but I'll talk about that in step 12. So step one is I'm powerless over alcohol because the physical craving linked to the enzyme, but more for me, the mental craving. And my life's unmanageable because of the symptoms of the internal spiritual maladjustment, which is growing anxiety, depression, and fear. And I have to come to believe in the idea of three forms of insanity. 
is the idea that I have to get over is that somehow, someday, I'll be able to control and enjoy my drinking. <coughs> that is to say, drink like a normal person. The insane idea that I can live by my old ideas don't have to change. In other words, I don't have to change. Do you hear that? For me to keep trying to live by my old ideas is to say, I don't have to change. And then the insane idea that somehow, someday, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to be normal. Like I woke up today, normal. I did. I'm going to tell you something. I woke up feeling normal a lot the last five years. I look in the mirror and I think, I mean, I hate to admit this, but sometimes I think, maybe I was just going through something. <laughs> I mean, have you ever thought that? Maybe I'm just, maybe I've overreacted. Because my life is so good, emotionally and spiritually, that I can't believe I'm still an alcoholic. And you know what? That's the most dangerous spot for an alcoholic to be in. Because that's when we start leaving AA. No offense, but we start joining churches and we kind of drift out of AA. But you know what? Nothing wrong with church, but I don't fit there. I can go there, but I fit here. And the reason I work with newcomers, and I'll talk about that this afternoon, the reason I work with newcomers is I forgot how sick I was. I don't remember. You hear me talking about it, but I don't feel it. I don't feel it no more. I'm past that. I don't feel sick anymore. Isn't that the damnedest thing? I truly don't feel sick. I just know I am. Do you have a question? Or are you just nervous? Oh, stretching. Okay. Any questions? Go. We'll talk about step 11 later on. Well, it might be good enough for you. Well, wait, am I your sponsor? <laughs> Don't force me to embarrass you, Joe. See, you give a guy a little attention and he opens up the damn book. You see? Any questions? All right, let's take a lunch break. Would you please be back here by 1.30?